0: do that habitually, and I can hear me, okay, Okay. we'll see how long it lasts, (laughs) (laughs) all right, as I was saying, no questions, exactly, yes, that's right, I answered all the questions, just five questions, so, yeah. Okay, well, it's a beautiful theme. We get to see even more of it if if you want to dig into that some more. So let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Our Father, we are grateful that you have given us time together uh, to dig into your Word and to try to better understand uh, how you have revealed yourself. We thank you for this beautiful marriage theme throughout Scripture and how you uh, draw us to yourself in the the closest relationship that could ever happen, Uh, not just created as your creatures, not even just made citizens of your kingdom, but adopted children, and even more so, uh, wed to your own Son. And uh, we're amazed at the covenant uh, of love that you've given to us, uh, purchasing the bride price uh, for sinners like us. And we just ask that your Spirit would guide us in our time of reflecting on your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so being that this is our sermon discussion uh, class. Uh, I normally begin with the same question because this is your time, and I want to address any things that were in the message that you found, you know, particularly helpful or confusing or concerning and something that you wanted to to deal with in this class. I want to make sure we handle those questions first, and then I have other things to expand on as we have time, but uh, is there any particular thing that was on your mind that you wanted to ask? And I'm going to repeat the question for the sake of the recording. Yes. Yeah, so just go, go back to the text, and the primary way that that's revealed is in verse 9, and so the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and so Jesus taking on that role is, is how that link is made grammatically in the text, because it was obviously not the bridegroom that brought the wine, it was the true bridegroom that brought the wine, so I will certainly admit that that theme is drawn out more clearly in other texts. I'm not saying it's uh, the clearest uh, of all the themes, but it's most certainly there, and it, and it is the main point when you look at it within the context of all of Scripture. Sorry, which verse? verse nine. So when the bride, the master of the bride, the master of the feast called the bride. Groom. And so when he is, um, what we see in that text is that he is identifying the bridegroom as the one who is responsible for bringing the wine for the feast. And so that's the grammatical link because it was not the man, it was Jesus that brought it, right? And so he is the bridegroom that's bringing the wine, and then obviously the Amos text of it's going to be flowing in the mountains, you know, that kind of a thing. So it's this God who redeems his vineyard, right, is the one who is now demonstrating himself. Now, it's the first miracle, so it's not like it's super, super explicit, right? I'm I'm not saying it's super explicit. I'm trying to make it more explicit by taking the light of a bunch of other texts and pointing to why that theme is there. But if you want to know where it is grammatically in the text, it's the master of the feast talking to the bridegroom, and that links the responsibility to the bridegroom and therefore shows us that the, the true bridegroom is the one that's providing the wine. Have there been other commentators that have pointed this out or agreeing with Yeah, that was, this, this does not come from me. This, one of my uh, professors in seminary was the one that made this connection for me so i i've only ever seen it this way <laughs> so was the master in, your, in that what was the that master the um no not not in this particular case he's just he's just the one that is um you know has responsibility you know in this particular um text to you know taste the wine to make sure that everything is happening the way that it should and so He's the one that's showing the connection of responsibility being between um the the master of the feast and the bridegroom, so that's that's where that link is made. Okay, other questions? Yes Yeah, that's a great question, so. Um, Jesus to, to answer it for to, to repeat it for the recording. Um, Jesus always had a purpose in what he did. Why would he choose this as his first um, miracle in, in revealing himself? So, um, the the best answer I can give you is I don't know. Um, but I can say that uh, you know in the pattern that that is being shown uh, throughout Scripture. Uh, the fact that the Bible begins with a wedding and ends with a wedding, um, to me, the marriage theme is something that's very, very critical as as a uh, metaphor within the Scriptures. And so um, God is speaking to his people in the Old Testament from the position of a husband, um, and that, that theme is very, very regular and common throughout all the Old Testament in in some very explicit ways. And so for Jesus to, to link it in, in that sense, that's, that's my, what I'm convinced of is that um, he's just demonstrating that he is this, this is the God that he is. It's the, the, the bridegroom of, of his people. So that's what I'm convinced of. Yes, Tom? Mm-hmm. that revelation of, of who he is. Right. And if that is the most important you know the Bible starts that way, ends that way. Right. So I I think I hadn't heard that too much, but it makes a tremendous amount of sense that, that isn't that being the link. Okay. That it emphasizes that. It comes out multiple ways. Yeah. You know that's what he chose mm-hmm. because it is foundational. Right. It, it is very foundational. You know if when you start thinking about um, having a relationship with the Lord and walking with Him in a daily way, like the metaphor of marriage, right, is so critical. But (laughs) if you read Ephesians 5, right, and you look at where Paul's talking about the responsibility of the bride, the responsibility of the groom, and I'm not talking about, right, he says I'm talking about Christ in the church. right? He's emphasizing bride and groom, emphasizing I'm talking about Christ in the church. He's like very explicit in Ephesians 5. And so what hit me a while back when I was studying Ephesians 5 was (laughs) the real thing is God's marriage relationship with his church. All of our marriages are the metaphor. Get what I'm saying? It's not that oh, now God decides to take this and try to make the connection so we can better understand those things. No, that's the real thing. And it's just, but how could we grasp it? You know, how can you grasp the closest relationship that exists between two human beings? Right, if you don't know and have a reference point for that, how can God say, my relationship with you is the closest relationship that can exist between two beings? Right, and so in Ephesians 5, to me, it just is like, oh, it's not that God is using marriage. It's that our marriages are the, are the illustration of the real thing. You know, we're the, we're the metaphor. So uh, yeah, it's powerful all throughout the scriptures. But I think for that exact reason, because he wants you to see yourself in relation to him with that level of care and of intimacy because he pursues us, right? He was not a God who was just sitting up in heaven waiting for us to go climb a mountain, right? It's not what he did, right? He sent his son. He pursued us. The groom pursues the wife, right? And then as Paul says in Ephesians 5, right, presents her to himself, right, as one that has been washed clean, right? So lots and lots of imagery about the marriage theme, and and we have even more to talk about as we get to it. But are there any other questions or comments before we keep going? Joe. Is there any connection or reason that this is on the third day? Um, Is there any connection to the resurrection? Because things are different. The resurrected Jesus is different. Sure. Yeah, I I mean, there's a few different things that people have said about the third day. I think that we are programmed from the prophecies of Jesus saying on the third day that that third day is very meaningful to us of the resurrection, right? So that's true. Uh, In this particular case, I don't see a a thematic link with the resurrection, um, but I, I guess the thematic link could be that, in our resurrected bodies, right, We there will be a wedding, right? So if you want to go that far, you could do that. But I think that's a little bit more of a stretch. Um, I think here it's really just something as simple as uh, going back to verse, chapter 1, verse 43, it says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, okay? And then he found Philip, Peter, you know, Philip and Nathaniel, right? He calls them to himself on the third day. So if you just follow the time references from chapter 1, verse 29, the next day, to chapter 1, verse 43, the next day, and then he says, on the third day, so it could just simply be that from verse 20, chapter 1, verse 29 is the first day, chapter 1, verse 43 is the second day, and chapter 2, verse 1 is the third day. It's merely a time reference. Okay, the next day. Sorry. So, and then on. Yeah. So, so maybe it's not that particular uh, link in that situation. But um, some some people said some of the commentators I read said in his journey from wherever he was to get to Cana, it could have taken a couple of days. Okay, that's another. Reference there it's not critical to the text, you know, so there's speculation in at least three directions, um, but at this point, it's just a time reference you know in, in this in the way John is revealing stuff okay, David very different places about the third day. oh sure it, there's no question third day is an important theme. I'm just saying in this particular place, it's not really clear as to what the connection is David. Okay, yeah, so, you know, and, and as I was trying to say in the sermon, I don't see this as, as a reprimand, you know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't see it as um, him being harsh with her at all, I do see him identifying the fact that my time of glory is not yet. So it is true, it is a correction of sorts, but it's not a harsh correction, right, He's clarifying for her, right, that uh, the day is going to come when he will be in his glory functioning as the bridegroom in the fullness of his glory with the wedding feast of his bride, right, that that day is indeed coming. And so that's why I'm convinced that um, in in him saying, what does it have to do with me, It, it It puts the question in our minds. What does it have to do with him? Because this is not his responsibility in the text. He's just a guest. And so we have to say, well, then why would he take on the role of the bridegroom unless he is our bridegroom God, right? That's what he's actually doing is he's demonstrating it. Now, in the progressive revelation that we're given in all of the the Gospels, particularly the book of John, right, there is something called the messianic secret. So where he says, you know, don't tell anyone what I did for you, right? Don't tell anyone what I did for you. Don't tell anyone what I did for you. My hour has not yet come. So why is he telling people not to tell people about the glory of the healing? Why would he do that? His hour hadn't come, but what would happen is he would get, Again, this is a horizontal human perspective. This is not the God-perfect vertical perspective. The horizontal human perspective is in the timing of his messianic ministry, he would have got crucified too early if he got too popular too fast. Does that make sense? Okay, so his delay of the information had the purpose of he doesn't want the spread, right, of his glory, of all that was going on to, to speed up too fast, because if it does, right, then the, the events are are going to happen too quickly. Now, again, that's, that's a man perspective, right? That's just trying to understand it from what we understand to be timing. Of course. I mean, did Jesus not know that the one guy he said, don't tell anybody, and the guy went and told people, did he not know that was going to happen? Of course he knew that was going to happen. All part of the plan, right? The vertical part, all set, predetermined, like, he's good, right? He has no problem. He's not going to stumble over anything in, in his ministry. But the timing, we're going to see throughout the whole book of John, this whole timing issue is really, really important of talking about his hour. And so in the hour not coming, he can demonstrate in a miracle that he is the bridegroom, but he's not ready to reveal himself in the fullness of his glory. So if you just take it as... The miracle is the sampling it's not the real thing in the same way that communion is the sampling, it's not the real thing, right it's, The real thing is our communion with Christ, right that connection that we have with him, as demonstrated in right the, the, the cup and the bread. Um, so it comes to us in that sampling, right that uh, example uh, that. Glimpse of glory not in its fullness, right? That's, that's the tension that we feel in the text, right? It's a little bit at a time. OK? Evie? Yes. John 12. Oh. Okay. Could you tell me: Yep. All right, I so the first place in the book of John, he says it is in John 12. I don't have the verse off the top of my head. So 23, thank you. Yep, 1223, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, okay? And so, you know, again, that, that, you know, as you read the Gospels, that might feel early, like it's only chapter 12. But if you understand the Gospel of John, you know that the, the whole last half of the Gospel is a one-week time period, right? So, like, all these things are happening, 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 like three years of stuff, and then, boom, we're at verse 12 and he's ready to do the whole rest of his of his ministry up to the resurrection and ascension right in all of those verses he he unpacks so much of Jesus ministry in that last week right so there's a lot going on there in the book of John time frame wise Oh that's fine no big deal Hey any other comment yes Yeah, so what I mentioned in the message was just the fact I, 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 you know, the Jews had a lot of different washings, right? That you read Leviticus and you can see there's, there's a ton of different washings that they're going to do. Um, what what Calvin pointed out when I was reading his comment on there was, you know, he's, just think about where he is in Geneva, right? Calvin's dealing with the manifestation of a Pharisaical focus on outward signs that the Catholic Church is is demonstrating in his time, and so he's very sensitive to the same spirit that was in the Pharisees being in the Catholic Church, right? Where they're always concerned about the outward demonstration, not concerned about the heart, always about the the relic, always about this other thing, right? Some type type of magical, you know, uh, uh, superstition, you know, that that was what Calvin's dealing with. And so he's recognizing the link in spirit between the Pharisee and and the, the Catholic leaders that he was contending with. And he just recognized that the Pharisees were very concerned with that outward demonstration of their holiness. And so there was always, you needed to have plenty of water, right, for them to do all the different extra washings that they did on top of what Leviticus requires, Does that make sense? So that was, I thought, a very insightful point, you know, and then how, as I saw it, instead of it being used to bring glory to those who wanted glory for themselves, he brought mercy to the humble, right? And so that that was the interesting connection there for me. Okay, any other comments, questions? All right, so... um, If you were one of the servants, what would you be thinking? That's a lot of water. water. Yeah. Okay, possibly. Or they might have said, we already got the water. Why do we need more water? Okay, yeah. So, you know, what, what was there, it could have been that the water was... In in those jars, but there wasn't enough water because it says the water was brought up to the brim. Now, why would the water be on the brim instead of down below the opening? Why would he want it at the brim? My cup is full and yes, it does. Exactly. There's a Psalm that talks about that, but you wouldn't be able to see it if it was... Down below. Does that make sense? The servants watched it. They saw the clear water turn to a dark red right before their eyes as they scooped it out. Does that make sense? If it was down deep, oh, maybe it was already a big thing of wine and we just didn't find it. Does that make sense? He wanted the miracle to be explicit. So maybe there was already water in, the, in there for the purification, but he wanted it filled to the brim so that it could be seen. That's that's what I'm convinced of in that text. Yes, wait. Did, with the jars of water, I just wondered, since they were for washing and stuff, was it always the cleanest water? Oh, good question. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And they would fill them up just for <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> gray water? (laughs) Yeah, hopefully not. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yep. I I have no idea, but very very much. uh, We knew Jesus was not, didn't struggle, right? We know that whatever he he did, it was going to be perfect that way. So. Yes, they did. That's right. That's it. It's it's sleight of hand, right? They want you to be looking over here while something else is happening. Yeah, exactly. So he wanted it to be obvious. So, <clears throat> have you ever been? Um, or sorry, how much of the marriage theme have you noticed in the scriptures? Now, I started with that a little bit. Right, we talked about a number of examples, uh, but prior to today, um, was that something that was very very clear in your minds, or is it just? starting to become more clear. Well, you read about Isaac. Yes. Just taking Rachel. Yes. into his mother's tent, Yes. And that was marriage. Well, right. I mean there was still a recognition of the of the covenant commitment that they had, but yeah, there's yeah, there's a recognition of that. Yeah, there's there's a lot of the, the importance of that. The interesting thing when we come to John 4, right, is we have another meeting of a woman at the well, right? So Jacob, right, met his wife at a well. Um, uh, the servant met Isaac's wife at a well, right? It's kind of like that's the place to meet wives, right? But then we're like, well, but this is the Samaritan woman, right? Like... I mean, that can't be his wife, right? Jesus didn't get married. No, but she is a picture of the church, right? He might as well be talking to Gomer, right? Sitting there at that well. And so he's the one bringing to her the water of life, right? In John four. So there's a lot of those themes from Old Testament that are then revealed in the book of John that are all of the New Testament, but particularly there. So, I can't do this in five minutes, but I'm going to try. Um, <clears throat> so there was something else that um, was was shown to me a number of years ago where this theme of the bride was demonstrated uh, through the doctrines of grace. Okay, so the five points of Calvinism, right? So total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, uh, irresistible uh, grace, and perseverance of the saints. That there's five Questions that we can ask in understanding the bride theme throughout Scripture. So the first one is Who is the bride? Who is the bride? And what does total depravity tell us who the bride is? Yauza, right? Start looking, right? As our, I mentioned Gomer already, she's one of the pictures, right? I mentioned Ezekiel 16, another one of the crazy graphic pictures in Scripture about who we are by nature, right? All throughout the Scriptures we recognize that you know we are people who have um who are sinners in need of a savior because of the total depravity and it's the sad part is it's not like just because Hosea married her she automatically became pure or faithful right that the continual struggle that occurred right in God's relationship to his people who were redeemed out of Egypt right though he saved us and brought us life, though he washed us clean, right, then we still walk with him through the wilderness in the years of rebellion, right? And then we get into the promised land and, oh, yes, destroy Jericho with, the you know, God's miracle and trumpets blasting, and then it's time to go to Ai, right? Oops, right? Back to trusting our own strength, right? So you have this over and over again where we reject our husband God, right, for the powers of this world or the promises of this world or the pleasures of this world, right, because we're not gaining enough satisfaction, right, from our one true God. And so the total depravity illustration of who the bride is is very, very clear. Okay, the second question is, who chose the bride, right? Because, you know, dating relationships in the ancient world was not like they are today, right? It would always be, right, the parents trying to figure out, is this a good match? The father chose the bride. And that's extremely clear from all of the New Testament, particularly the book of John, right? Where Jesus says, you know, the the ones you gave to me, right? It says that in like three or four places. The ones you gave, I will by no means lose any of the ones you gave to me. So that theme of the Father giving people, selecting, electing, giving people, giving the bride to Christ, that theme is all throughout the Scriptures with regard to election. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. And so Paul looks at the bride of Christ. He takes Ephesians 5 responsibility to say, I have to labor as a apostle to try to purify the church because my responsibility is to present the church to Christ, right? And to do what I can to see her washed clean with the word, right? So again Ephesians 5 just coming out again. Now, he's the one that wrote that. So he understands what he wrote and the spirit revealed to him, but it found again in 1 Corinthians, right? That that's coming out, right? That theme a uh, marriage theme. The third question is who bought The bride. You might be familiar with the ancient bride price, right? So there would have to be the uh, bride price paid. Now, why do you think there was a bride price that was required? How are you going to provide for my daughter if you cannot pay the bride price? Does that make sense? The guy has to be worth enough salt, right, that he can make enough money to pay the bride price and prove to her father right, that he was able to care for his daughter. Does that make sense? The bride price. And so the bride price is paid by Jesus, obviously proving uh, that he was able to pay. So 1 Corinthians 6, uh, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price, right? So glorify God in your body. Uh, Galatians three: Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Curses everyone who is hanged on a tree." So that Christ, so that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So this idea of Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law—right, that purchase right of sinners right out of our depravity—he made, pati- excuse me, particular atonement for us as sinners. Question number four, uh, who summoned the bride, right? So there's the, the condition of the bride, there's the father electing the bride, there's the son uh, making the bride price, and then who is doing the summoning of the bride to be drawn to her spouse, right? Who leads her down the aisle? None other than the Holy Spirit. So you have man's identity in question one, the father's role in question two, the son's role in question three, the Spirit's role in question four, and then the redeemed Christian's role in question five, which we'll get to in a minute, okay? But in irresistible grace, the one summoning the bride is the Holy Spirit. So in Romans chapter eight, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what theologians call the effectual calling right it's not just like hey come to jesus right it's the spirit actually bringing a dead soul to life right it's the effectual call of the word going out god spoke the universe into existence and the word spoken and preached right the spirit uses to bring new life into the heart of the uh, unbeliever of the elect uh, john 6:44 no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and who is the primary means of the father's drawing it says in other parts of john the holy spirit i will raise him up at the last day okay ooh, i only got two minutes fifth question who forever keeps the bride because as we already found out she by her nature is unfaithful right James one twelve. blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And then Revelation two seven. he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so These promises of perseverance that are there, what you notice in the two verses I read, it's not just the promise of perseverance, it's the requirement of perseverance. So it's not coasting, right? It's not, you know, once saved, always saved, and we coast. It's work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Does that mean that we can't have assurance of faith? Not saying that. It's saying that there is a continual demonstration and a bearing of fruit, and you will know them by their fruit. And so it's a, it's a development and a maintenance of that assurance, right? Because when a person goes under church discipline, right, what happens? Well, they get corrected one-on-one, and then they blow it off. They don't think it's important. So then it's two or three go to that person and try to emphasize how important uh, this is, what they've done and how they need to be addressed uh, because their soul, right, is at risk because of the sin that they have committed and that they're not repenting of, right? And so... When they uh, are rebuked in that situation and they blow that off, right, then they're called before the elders of the church, right? The session has a responsibility to repeat what the first two meetings emphasized with great compassion, with great care, with great earnestness for this person's soul. And when the person has fully rejected, right, the counsel of the elders and the elders by their obedience to Christ are forced to excommunicate and declare that the person is an unbeliever, or acting like an unbeliever. Not one human being can see another person's soul, but elders are given the responsibility to respond to the good or bad fruit. And so they can only say, all the evidence you're giving us is you're not regenerate. You're not a believer. That's what you're demonstrating to us. And so what do we need to do for unbelievers? love them and give them the gospel. Can't make them believe. But you can see that in 1 John it says, they went out from us because they were not of us. So it is possible to be churched, right, to be very religious and to be one of the weeds instead of one of the wheat. And it's possible that that is discovered in a sin situation and through excommunication that person went out from us because they were not of us. Or, as happened with me when I had to excommunicate somebody. We, we, we did double Matthew 18, two one-on-ones, two two-and-three-on-ones, and two times with the session, double grace, still had to get excommunicated. And right before I moved to Michigan, I saw him walking on the street with a gas can, and I picked him up to bring him to his car, and I told him I'm leaving Florida. And he said, I just want to thank you for what you guys did for me. I've never thought of that being the response of an excommunicated person. Thank you for excommunicating me, right? He had an unbiblical divorce, right? And what are we going to do, right? We're, we're We're responsible to the Lord for what we do. And so he thanked me because he recognized somebody had to say this is wrong and had to follow up with it. And we did. And he identify that and recognize that God used it for good in his life, that the Lord is serious about his discipline and that he uses it to draw us back to himself, right? And so I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe the, he did repent and the Lord has restored him and he's a faithful member in the church. I don't know. I don't keep in touch with him, but I just want you to see that it is possible that this is for the good of the sinner, right? When those things have to happen. And so the perseverance of the saints is a very real and serious thing. It's not coasting. It's those who persevere. It says right there in the text, right? Those who are steadfast, right? Those who conquer, right? So as John Owen said, be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. So mortification, right? How do we kill our sin? How do we wake up each day and say, I'm going to be one who puts to death the deeds of the body and I'm going to walk in the spirit today, right? It's a daily battle. And if we're not waging that war, then the war may have already been lost. So that's his call to us in the perseverance of the saints. So let me uh, close our time in prayer because I went a couple minutes over. Father, we are grateful that you have given us your word. Uh, We know that your call to us is very serious, uh, but we also know that your grace is indeed sufficient, that you will indeed complete the work that you have begun in us. And we're grateful for that truth and that we can be confident in Christ and in the work of your spirit through your word. Uh, Lord, help us to be bringing ourselves to you in full dependence on a daily basis, not believing that we're going to lose our salvation, but believing that we want to persevere and demonstrate the fruit of your spirit at work so that we might point others to Jesus. By our words and by our works, we pray in his name. Amen.